Hello there, Ross. Hope you're enjoying your Sunday in San Francisco. The weather's looking up with a high of 60 degrees and a clear sky this morning, though you might catch some broken clouds by evening. Perfect for maybe a stroll or just soaking up some of that city vibe. But before you head out, let's dive into the news shaping your world today. Down in Florida, the legislative gears are turning over social media use among the young. A new bill just passed aims to set the digital boundary at age 16. That's right, Jonathan. The bill isn't just about keeping those under 16 off platforms like Instagram and Facebook. It's about how they're going to enforce it, too. Think third-party age checks and mandatory account deletions for the underage. I'm Jonathan Martin. And I'm Steve Onsker. Welcome to Ahead of the Curve from PocketPod News. Over in Japan, there's a significant push to get back on the semiconductor map. TSMC, a giant in chip manufacturing, has opened its first plant there with more on the horizon. It's not just about making chips, it's about securing Japan's technological sovereignty and economic future. Prime Minister Kishida is all in, boosting government funding to support TSMC's expansion. And stirring up the tech world is Baiju's founder, Baiju Raviendran, who finds himself at odds with shareholders calling for his removal as CEO. Despite their vote, he stands firm, challenging both the process and their authority to oust him amidst financial turbulence within his edtech empire. It's a tale as old as time, innovation clashing with governance. But Raviendran is not backing down easily, insisting on steering his company through its current storm. This message is brought to you by PocketPod. Say goodbye to one-size-fits-all podcasts and hello to a fully personalized listening experience with AI-crafted podcast made just for you. Head over to PocketPod.app to join the waitlist. In Florida, a new bill is sparking a heated debate on how young is too young for social media. That's right. The state legislature has just passed legislation that would prevent anyone under the age of 16 from using social media platforms. It's a move aimed at protecting kids from the potential mental health risks of excessive screen time. But not everyone's on board. Critics say it infringes on free speech and steps over parents' rights to supervise their children's online activities. Governor Ron DeSantis is now weighing in, balancing concerns over privacy with the need to protect Florida's youth. To dive deeper into this complex issue, we're joined by PocketPod News national political correspondent Don Gallup. Don, there's a lot to unpack here between parental authority, privacy rights, and mental health concerns. Where do we even begin? Indeed, Steve, it's a multifaceted issue. Let's start with the Florida legislature's recent decision, which aims to prohibit individuals under the age of 16 from using social media platforms. This legislative move is driven by concerns over the potential mental health risks that excessive use of social media can pose to young people. The bill, having been passed by lawmakers just this Thursday, is now awaiting review by Governor Ron DeSantis. And what's Governor DeSantis's stance on this issue? Governor DeSantis has recognized the potential harm that social media can inflict on children. However, he also raises concerns about infringing on privacy rights and overriding parental supervision. His position highlights a significant tension between protecting children in the digital realm and preserving family autonomy when it comes to engaging with technology. There seems to be quite a bit of public debate around this bill. Can you tell us more about the opposition it's facing? Absolutely, Steve. Critics argue that this bill could potentially violate First Amendment rights and reduce parents' control over their children's online activities. A notable opponent is Meta. 
the parent company of Instagram and Facebook, which opposes the legislation due to concerns over data privacy and limits on parental discretion. They advocate for federal measures that would require parental approval for minors' app downloads instead. The bill targets specific features of social media platforms. Could you elaborate on those? Yes, the legislation takes aim at features known for keeping users engaged, such as infinite scrolling, reaction metrics like likes or shares, autoplay videos, live streaming capabilities, and push notifications. Lawmakers believe these functionalities contribute to addictive behaviors in minors and exacerbate mental health issues without naming any specific platforms. And what about privacy protection? How does the bill address those concerns? To tackle privacy concerns head-on, provisions have been included in the bill aiming to enhance user data protection during age verification processes. Furthermore, it allows for civil lawsuits against companies that fail to delete personal information from terminated accounts. These measures seek to balance constitutional rights related to privacy while holding social media companies accountable for their practices. This isn't an isolated case, though, right? Other states are considering similar laws? That's correct. Florida's legislation follows Utah's footsteps, which became the first state to adopt laws regulating children's access to social media back in March 2023. Arkansas, Louisiana, Ohio, and Texas are either following suit or contemplating similar regulations, illustrating a growing national trend towards stricter regulation of minors' access to digital platforms. So what do we make of all this? It sounds like there are no easy answers. Indeed not, Steve. While intended as protective measures against potential harms associated with online engagement, particularly among youth, such legislative efforts raise complex questions about free speech rights versus government intervention in child-rearing practices and data privacy considerations. As states across the U.S. explore similar regulations amid broader discussions about technology's role in society and individual well-being, these debates are likely only going to intensify. Thanks for that comprehensive overview, Don. My pleasure, Steve. Always good discussing these important issues with you. The global semiconductor landscape is witnessing a pivotal shift. Absolutely, and leading the charge is Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Kuoas, or TSMC, which has just opened its very first plant in Japan. It's a significant move for TSMC and a big leap for Japan's efforts to rejuvenate its semiconductor industry. To delve deeper into what this means for the global tech scene and Japan's place in it, we're joined by PocketPod News Technology Analyst Katrina Shelton. Katrina, Japan was once a titan in chip production. How does TSMC's new venture play into Japan's ambitions? Absolutely, Jonathan. The opening of TSMC's first semiconductor plant in Japan is a significant milestone for both TSMC and Japan's semiconductor industry. Um, for decades, Japan was at the forefront of chip production, but over the years, it has seen its global market share decline sharply due to stiff competition from other countries. Now, um, with TSMC, uh, a titan in the semiconductor manufacturing sector, um, establishing its presence in Japan, it's a clear signal that Japan is serious about reclaiming its position in the global semiconductor arena. That sounds like a major move for TSMC as well. Can you talk more about what this expansion means for them and their global strategy? Certainly. For TSMC, expanding into Japan is not just about increasing their production capacity, it's also a strategic maneuver. Amidst rising geopolitical tensions and supply chain challenges, diversifying their manufacturing base beyond Taiwan is crucial. By establishing a footprint in Japan, TSMC is not only mitigating risks, but also positioning itself closer to some of its major clients like Sony and Denso. 
Moreover, with plans already announced for a second plant in Japan earlier this month, um, TSMC's commitment to its global expansion and resilience against disruptions is clear. And what role does the Japanese government play in all of this? The Japanese government has played a pivotal role by providing significant financial support to encourage TSMC's investment. With contributions exceeding 1 trillion yen, that's around $7 billion, the government's commitment is undeniable. This substantial investment highlights Japan's determination to revive its semiconductor industry and reduce dependency on chip imports, which have become increasingly unreliable amidst global supply chain disruptions. It seems like there's also a broader significance to semiconductors that goes beyond just economic factors. Absolutely, Jonathan. Um, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida himself emphasized the strategic importance of cutting-edge semiconductor technology, not just for economic competitiveness, but also for national security. With advancements in electric vehicles, artificial intelligence, and other emerging technologies, driving global demand for advanced chips having domestic production capabilities becomes critical. How do companies like Sony and Toyota fit into this picture? These companies are integral to this initiative through their investments in TSMC's new plant. Having stakeholders like Sony Semiconductor Solutions Corp, Dockers, Denso Corp, Docker, and Toyota Motor Corp, all giants in their respective fields, investing alongside TSMC signifies strong collaborative efforts within the Japanese industrial sector towards advancing chip manufacturing capabilities. And finally, what does this mean for job creation and technological advancements? The establishment of these plants by TSMC is expected to directly create 3,400 high-tech jobs, while ensuring access to advanced chips crucial for future technologies such as electric vehicles and AI developments. This move not only boosts employment, but also supports technological innovations essential for these next-generation technologies. It seems like there are plenty of layers to unpack with TSMC's venture into Japan, from geopolitical strategies to technological advancements. Thanks for breaking it down so comprehensively today, Katrina. My pleasure, Jonathan. It's always intriguing to delve into how such developments influence the global tech landscape. The world of edtech is facing a significant shakeup right in the heart of Bengaluru, India. That's right. Baiju's, a leading edtech startup, is in the midst of a dramatic internal conflict. Its founder and CEO, Baiju Raviendran, is fighting against an attempt by some shareholders to oust him over governance and financial issues. And despite the turmoil, Ravindran is pushing back hard. He's sent out a letter to employees refuting claims of his ousting, launched a rights issue aiming to raise about $200 million, and even questioned the validity of the shareholder meeting that sought his removal. It's a complex situation involving accusations of financial mismanagement, procedural discrepancies at shareholder meetings, and battles over public perception. To help us navigate through this saga and understand its implications for Baiju's future and the broader edtech landscape, we're joined by PocketPod News business and finance correspondent Scott Dwyer. Scott has been closely following these developments. Scott, where do we even begin with this? Well, Jonathan, it's a tangled web at Baiju's, starting with the company's founder and CEO, Baiju Ravindran. Following an emergency general meeting where shareholders voted for his removal, Ravindran sent a letter to employees on Saturday. In it, he refuted claims of his ousting as exaggerated and highlighted concerns over the legitimacy of the shareholder meeting. He argued that the meeting lacked procedural validity, including not meeting the minimum quorum. It sounds like Ravendran is standing his ground. Can you tell us more about the shareholder group's stance? 
Absolutely. The shareholder group in question includes heavyweights like Process Ventures and Peak 15 Ventures, and they voted unanimously at Friday's emergency general meeting for resolutions addressing governance issues and proposing leadership changes at Baiju's. This move underscores deep concerns among investors regarding financial mismanagement and compliance within the company, signaling a significant rift between Ravindran and some of Baiju's major backers. And what about Ravindran's concerns over the meeting procedures? Does he have a point? He might have one, Jonathan. Ravindran claimed that only 35 of Baiju's 170 shareholders attended this extraordinary general meeting, representing about 45% ownership. This raises questions about whether proper legal procedures were followed and if there was indeed enough quorum to make any decisions binding. It's a critical point that could affect how these proceedings are viewed legally and ethically. Amidst all this internal discord, Baiju's launched a rights issue to raise funds. How does that fit into this picture? Now, that's an interesting turn of events amidst the turmoil. Despite having its valuation significantly reduced from $22 billion to about $25 million, Baiju's launched a rights issue aiming to raise approximately $200 million. Ravindran has called this move overwhelmingly successful, suggesting investor confidence might still be high despite recent challenges. It poses an intriguing contradiction. Financial challenges on one hand, but claimed strong investor interest on the other. There seems to be also a dispute over how this saga is being portrayed publicly. Indeed, Jonathan, amidst these boardroom battles, there's also a war of narratives playing out in public view. Ravindran accused minority shareholders of spreading misinformation through media channels, but insisted Baiju's would not engage in a media war to counter these claims. This tactic spotlights another layer in their strategy, controlling public perception without directly confronting the accusations in a highly public forum. With all these moving parts, what could be the broader implications for Baiju's future? Uh, the situation at Baiju's could serve as a cautionary uh, tale for, for startups about governance and investor relations importance, and especially in high-stakes environments like EdTech where rapid growth often precedes stringent financial scrutiny. How Baiju's navigates through these challenges could significantly impact uh, its operational stability and industry position moving forward. Fascinating insights as always, Scott. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Jonathan. Always glad to delve into these complex stories with you. And that's ahead of the curve for Sunday, February 25th, 2024. I'm Jonathan Martin. And I'm Steve Onsker. Thank you for listening. We hope you have a good day and we will see you tomorrow. This podcast was created by PocketPod entirely with AI. If you'd like to learn more, head over to pocketpod.app.